Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication from the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing whether trustees have a responsibility to live up to the values of their charity and what organisations can do when this doesn't happen. To do that, we'll be joined by Penny Wilson, the Chief Executive of Getting On Board. And then in this week's Good News Bulletin, I'll be joined by Alina to discuss a very generous and patient hair donor and an accidental donation of a designer handbag. But first, towards the end of January, Charles Darley, the interim chief executive of Caps Protection, resigned from his post three months into a 12-month contract. Darley said his decision to resign was based on deep-rooted governance concerns relating to the fact that the charity's chair, Linda Upson, was keeping 18 cats in a three-bedroom house. Darley told Third Sector that five other small animal welfare charities and the Association of Dogs and Cats Homes were consulted on the matter, and they concluded that they could not generally support keeping 18 cats in a three-bed house on welfare grounds. He said he had raised the issue with the board, but it was only partially investigated. He said the subcommittee involved didn't examine whether the three-bed house was suitable for 18 cats, and instead simply sought assurances that Upson would not add any more cats to her home. He also said Cats Protection was the only major animal charity in the UK to consider and reject the idea of adopting a code of conduct for trustees. Daly said he was concerned about the welfare of the cats, but also the charity's reputation if it became known that its chair was keeping so many animals in her home. Well, Third Sector published the story about Daly's resignation, which went on to be covered by a number of national papers. And four days later, Upson stepped down from her role. A spokesperson for Cats Protection confirmed that Upson did own 14 pet cats and at the end of last year had kept another six kittens that were awaiting new homes. Now Upson, who had been on the board since 2012 and served as its chair since 2017, said in a statement that she had spent the past 20 years supporting cat welfare through voluntary roles with the charity. She said, cat welfare and well-being have always been a paramount concern for me and I have always ensured my own cats and foster cats receive the best possible care. These two stories have been some of the most read stories on our website over the past couple of weeks, and they throw up some really interesting questions about what responsibility trustees have to represent the charities they govern. Here to discuss these questions with us is Penny Wilson, the Chief Executive of Getting On Board, a charity that focuses on trustee recruitment. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Penny. Pleasure, Rebecca. It's great to have you here, Penny. And of course, as well as leading Getting On Board, you are famously one of our regular third sector columnists. You dish out monthly pieces of governance wisdom to our audience. Um, So what was your reaction to this, I think I can safely say, quite unusual uh, governance case at Cats Protection? Um, I think... First of all, we're always more bothered about animals than people. And that's immediately (laughs) what one of my colleagues said to me. And I thought, oh, she's absolutely bang on. We're much more outraged about the idea that some cats might be damaged in some way than people who may be victims of racism or other discrimination. So that, you know, that in itself was one of my reactions. I think also we can't possibly know what actually happened. We need to just kind of take a step back and think, you know, we can't know what happened, particularly in this case, but actually what can we learn as charity leaders of other charities so that we don't get ourselves in similar muddles. Um, And I think, you know, there's lots of things that we should do, but don't. And this is just a reminder that actually we need to have all of our ducks in a row so that if we hit a crisis like this, that we're much more likely to see it to, to 
kind of ride it out. Yeah, and I think thinking about whether or not this is an unusual case, I definitely remember seeing stuff involving uh, celebrity patrons kind of behaving in ways that were quite embarrassing for charities. Um, Famously, uh, last year, or a couple of years ago now, Martin Clunes was filmed uh, climbing rather awkwardly on top of an elephant in a documentary and kind of Born Free Foundation, who he was a patron of, said, actually, we're not okay with that. Please don't do that. Um, Similarly, we've had kind of Christine Hamilton tweeted some quite unpleasant tweets about uh, women in hijabs and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, charity that she was involved with said actually you don't represent us please don't do that um where it comes to trustees is this an issue that you've seen before where a trustee's own behavior seems to conflict with the charity's policies absolutely i mean i'd say i hear several cases of this a week Um, oh wow week yeah i think you know yeah in our work so we run workshops with charity with groups of charity leaders but also we're in conversations with individual charity leaders whether they're ceo or trustee um all the time and it comes up so so regularly um and you know these are the big high profile ones and how interesting that one of you know one of your examples rebecca was animal related yes, again yeah <laughs> and we're really uncomfortable with that aren't we um yeah i think it's super super common and whether that's a, a kind of publicly um shared opinion that just feels out of sync with the charity's values or worse behavior that's out of sync with the charity's values and i think Often we have a real temptation to br- want to brush it under the carpet, particularly if it's something that isn't out in the public domain. And that is very, very risky, I think. Um, and certainly I've heard examples of um, opinions shared in board meetings that are discriminatory in some way and nobody calling them out. Opinions shared on social media and nobody calling them out because it's on someone's personal social media. You know, that's... that's bad and I can understand that when you're in the moment somebody might say something and you're so kind of shocked that a trustee in particular has said that that as a fellow trustee or a CEO the moment's almost passed before you thought did they actually just say that and how am I going to take Mm. them down but actually that's still not an excuse for not doing something about it later even if you can't do something about it in the moment so yeah I think it's incredibly common I think it's so interesting that you said you get a couple of cases to do with you know stuff like this several times a week that is incredibly frequent and it's very interesting the charity trustee position because you are somebody who holds so much responsibility for massive decisions in your organization and I think you know you forget that actually all of these people are really just volunteers who give in their own time and you know if you were a board on a large company um, or a senior management team in a large company, you'd have things like HR practices, which were put out and people were expected to adhere to. And I think that would probably be explicitly spelled out. Um, maybe when it comes to trustee boards, you actually just don't have that as much. Um, I mean, what responsibility do trustees have to live the values of and to represent the organisations that they serve? I mean, I think they have to- total responsibility to do that but they're also setting the values aren't they they're the most senior leaders within an organization so it's their responsibility to set the values and then live by them um and I think there's lots of problems inherent in that one is that we've often got actually CEOs and senior leadership teams setting the values not the trustees um where you know perhaps the the um the kind of power dynamic is out of sync we've often not got explicit values set so i'd say particularly in small to medium sized organisations it's still relatively uncommon to have a trustee code of conduct and to only think about having one when something goes wrong whereas actually we should all have them 
Um, and it's much easier to deal with behaviour that feels out of line if there's an agreed trustee code of conduct that's regularly reviewed that the trustees have talked about um, and that they are explicitly held, that their behaviour is explicitly held up against. It's really hard to retrofit a code of conduct. And I think there's just so much grey area in this. You know, in this, but I don't know, I don't know the details of this particular case, but from what I can gather, um, the chair didn't go against any guidelines set by the charity itself. And even in um, the regulator's guidance, it still seems that she didn't explicitly contravene the guidance. Now, I might be wrong about that, but the fact is it looks very, very grey. Um, I've been told there is no guidance that says how many cats you can have in a three-bedroom house. So she read she read the guidance as her behaviour being absolutely within it, whereas other people clearly read it as her behaviour being unacceptable and contravening that guidance. So that's just one example of how it really, really is very, very, very grey often. And I think sometimes we couldn't have seen stuff coming and there's nothing we could have done about it. But the more we can explicitly talk about our values, write them down, try to live by them, try to flush out where we think there might be some disagreement in advance of some sort of crisis, then that's going to set us up better. And it's interesting you mentioned codes of conduct there, because that was something that was raised in this case by the the chief executive who resigned over it. And yeah, I just wondered if you had any ideas about what should go in a code of conduct if people are looking to put them together. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the code of conduct is really stating what feels very obvious. So that the and it goes straight back to the the Charity Commission or Oscars or uh, Charity Commission Northern Ireland, wherever you are in the country, it goes straight back to what the actual legal responsibilities of a trustee is. So the fact that you need to manage care, conflicts of interest carefully, that you shouldn't bring the charity into disrepute, um, that you should have, you know, that you should make sure the charity is operating within its objects. So some of the very, very core governance stuff. But then alongside the fact that some some trustee behaviours, that trustees ought to respect each other's opinions, that they ought to stick to the charity's policies, that they definitely ought to be sticking um, you know, to the letter of any guidelines that the charity is offering, that they shouldn't be saying anything that's going to bring the charity into disrepute. But even some of these, as I was saying them, you know, it's great, isn't it? Because how do you decide whether something's going to bring a charity into disrepute or not? Doesn't it just depend as to whether it's a slow news day or not, or as to whether it involves an animal, as to whether, or as to whether a disgruntled interim CEO outs you? So it's even even with the, these codes of conduct, it's it's not. Um, you know, it's it's not necessarily going to stop any problems. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting what you've just said there, because, of course, you know, one of the reasons that Charles Darley, who was the interim chief executive at Cats Protection, stepped down was that he felt as though the board had not taken appropriate action in this one instance where he felt there was, you know, a major conflict of interest within his organisation. And he felt that, you know, the board had they'd only partially investigated it. He didn't think that they had really taken sufficient you know, measures to look at what he considered to be this problem. Um So if you have a trustee who is maybe behaving in a way that is embarrassing for the charity or who has breached a trustee code of conduct, whether that's written or unwritten, what can charities do to actually deal with these situations? How should they be behaving around it? I think having an early conversation as possible um, around the board table, you know, probably partly with the trustee there and then possibly partly with them not there um, and trying to solve it trying to reach an agreement without it really imploding, ideally. And obviously that depends how serious the initial incident is. But if you, I think that often the stories that I hear 
people are often saying to me there were warning signs and I ignored them. So often these things don't come out of nowhere. Mm. um, And actually people have brushed it under the carpet and then it's just, you know, it's just utterly imploded because it's got nowhere else to go. So I think dealing with things early, um, often there's a really fundamental disagreement about the direction of an organization isn't there so I I wouldn't say this is necessarily what happened in this in this case but trustees can fundamentally disagree what they're there to do how you know how are they best um, delivering on a charity's purpose so it might be that it's a charity uh, you know a a village charity it's got a it owns a community hall that it's had for 100 years and you might have a group of trustees who think the best thing we can do for the village is sell this building because it's sitting on some really expensive land and then make some grants to to some local organizations for the good of the villagers and another group of trustees in the same organization might be thinking what we should do is we should allow local village groups to use the hall to provide as many you know different interesting clubs and, and services for villagers in the hall that we've got we mustn't let go of it and actually you know that's those disagreements over fundamental purpose oh, they're not against charity values but actually they cause so so many issues where where actually the trustees just need to get in a room and really thrash it out and and reach some consensus rather than coming into the room every single board meeting and having a mini scrap about it and then going home again and huffing away to their families and then leaving it a couple of months <laughs> yeah. and going back into the same scenario and having the argument all over again. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um Obviously, to kind of think more widely about trusteeship and about governance in the sector, it's been undeniably a really tough couple of years for charities. And what effect has that increased pressure on charities had on the people who are serving as trustees on their boards? Trustees have had to become um, much more operational in the last couple of years. So particularly in the early pandemic, we know that, you know, staff and trustees were both struggling. Some trustees were resigning because they were just, you know, this was just another pressure um, on top of all the other possible pressures that they had in the, in the rest of their lives. And I think lots of boards have become much more operational because they wanted to see their charity through the crisis. And actually, you know, br- some phenomenal trustees out there who've really, really worked hard to keep their organisations going. Um, and I guess now we're coming, I know we're not over the pandemic, but we're dealing with it. You know, we're, we're kind of coming out the other side. It's going to be hard for some of those boards to step back, isn't it? And to remember that if they've got staff, they need to leave so they need to step back and become less operational. And obviously that depends because in smaller organisations, trustees are more operational already, even pre-pandemic. So I think, again, we, we've had this big jolt and now we need to get back to the new normal and try and extract ourselves from the operations again. You talk about the new normal there, but um, from a lot of your writing, really, you don't want normal to be the way trustee boards are looking. Um, This is my provocation to you. You're not such a fan of what we would call the normal trustee board these days. Obviously, overwhelmingly white. They are overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly held by people who are slightly older. You write a lot about the need for greater diversity on trustee boards and arguably having more diverse voices in the room, having more diverse people sitting on a board will mean that you are having, you know, more nuanced conversations, you're having, a, you know, better plans for your charity and possibly, you know, running into less conflict on boards as well. Um, what do you think the state of trustee recruitment is like at the moment? Are we getting into a place where people are starting to recognise the importance of having diversity on their boards? Are they moving away from these sort of, uh, forgive me for saying it, stale, pale male lineups? 
Wow. Where do I start with that, Emily? <laughs> You're going to get me on my hobby horse now. Um, good, good. I, I, think, I think the first thing to say is that I'm actually a massive fan of, of the hundreds of thousands of people that we've got who are already voluntarily, on the whole, serving as trustees. They are incredible people. However, a massive plea to them that, no, it's not good enough that only 36% of our trustees are women. It's not good enough that only 8% of trustees are people of colour. It's not good enough that only a third of trustees are under 50. Um, and we don't even have stats for disability and so on because nobody's thought to measure them. And that says it all really, doesn't it? It's not good enough that three quarters of trustees are from households above the national median for household income. So, you know, we are, we have a higher level of formal education. We're wealthier, we're whiter, we're more likely to be older and maler. Now, that isn't a criticism of current trustees, you know, for the things that they kind of can't control. But but you, existing trustees, must take action because this is a total own goal. You know, we could talk about the moral case for diversity till the cows come home. But actually, when we come to recruit our staff in the charity sector, we don't just ask around and ask Bob from the golf course if he wouldn't mind coming and being our next CEO. Um, and actually, that is how we're recruiting the majority of our trustees. So still, yes, the largest charities are, are pretty much all openly recruiting now. But the majority of the sector, which is small to medium sized organisations up and down the country, the most common way of becoming a trustee is by being asked. And that is not the way to get the best mix of talent on our trustee boards to help our charities thrive. It's an own goal. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. And that's why we need change. You know, there are whole swathes of society, possibly the majority of society, who think that trusteeship isn't something for them. It's something they've never heard of. They're not excited by it. They think that people like them don't become trustees. And you know, so, so many of these people would make the most phenomenal trustees. And yet here we are without them even considering taking on that position. And that to me, that's just utterly bonkers. And I'd love to come back to the conflict. I don't know if you want to follow that on, Emily, but I'd yeah. love to talk about conflict in a minute, if that suits. Absolutely. You you go go right ahead. Tell us about it. So, so I think, does diversity lead to less conflict? No, I think it probably doesn't. Um, yeah, and- I think I flubbed that, to be fair. <laughs> I think, but I think we need to define what what we mean by conflict. So I think boards Mm. are meant, you know, we're meant to be disagreeing with each other. That's our job. So a good board, an effective board is not one that goes into a room, has a nice chat and a cup of tea or in a Zoom room, brings their own tea um, and then basically nods stuff through, does it very efficiently, keeps to time. Oh, look, we finished 10 minutes early. Isn't that wonderful? But never, ever disagrees with each other because they all think the same. Now that feels very functional, but actually it's not, is it? Because that's not good governance. So if you've got a room full of people who don't come from the same background, backgrounds who disagree with each other and therefore you might have an absolute roaring debate about what the best way forward is for your organisation, that is good governance. But the line between that and conflict, it's easier to cross into that line, isn't it? From that end of the kind of governance spectrum, if you're all disagreeing with each other, it's too easy for things to become personal and things to get out of hand and for people to get upset um, and for actually that to affect the charity negatively as well. So it's not easy, but I would say that we must we must have debate on our debate on our boards. That's what good governance is. Absolutely. And the minute the word conflict led my left my mouth, I thought, actually, Emily, I think the word you were actually looking for there is groupthink, not conflict. Two completely different things. Um, so you're completely right. But we'll leave it in there because you just made an incredibly valid point, which I think everyone <laughs> should hear. Thank you. <laughs> 
So one thing that this case brings up, and I think we've sort of been talking around a couple of times in this discussion around talking about how trustees are involved in, have been involved during the pandemic in the operational side of charities and need to kind of row back from that. One thing that's that's crucial there is this relationship between the chief executive and the chair and the rest of the trustees. And yeah, I wondered how that is looking both in terms of the wider sector and, you know, what needs to happen there to ensure that we don't get these kind of unhealthy conflicts or, or, you know, feelings that the the issues raised can't be resolved internally. Yeah, I mean, I guess, first of all, to say that most charities are too small to have staff. So if we just remember that, you know, this is only an issue for a subset of our sector. But yeah, I mean, board CEO relations are, it feels like they're at the root of of so many um, issues with charities. And it looks like, you know, certainly with the cats protection issue, there was something of that there as well. And, you know, it's really difficult after the pandemic, as I said earlier, boards are going to have to row back from being more operational. Um, it's it's really, really hard being a CEO, by the way, I am one. <laughs> and it's when you go into a into a board meeting, and I'm, I would say this, wouldn't I, but I'm lucky because I've got a phenomenal board of trustees are getting on board. But when you go into a board meeting, you are one person, and your board is four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people. And it can feel like the Spanish Inquisition. And it's also hard as a trustee, I'm one of those as well. Um, it's hard to get that balance right, isn't it, between being a critical friend, but also not absolutely demotivating the person who's probably working their absolute socks off and is running the organisation day to day. So those, the the board CEO relations, uh, and particularly the chair CEO relations are so key to the good running of a charity, and yet so often go pear shaped. Um, Yeah, and I would say, you know, chairs, get yourself off to the association of chairs and go and join. (laughs) Um, Trustees, you know, just put yourself in the feet of CEOs and CEOs go and become trustees elsewhere. If you're you're not already a trustee somewhere else, it can be an amazing kind of eye opener to be on the other side of the fence uh, because either side, it's quite hard to manage. Yeah, that is a really good point as well, that that yes, staff can be trustees, trustees can be staff elsewhere. And also that that support is available from from getting on board from the Association of Chairs and yes, talking to peers and finding out about experience in other organisations is, is never a bad thing, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Brilliant. Oh, thank you very much for joining us, Penny. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. I'm joined this week by Third Sector Editorial Assistant, Alina Martin. Alina, welcome back. Uh, What's your good news story for this week? Yes, this is a story about an 11-year-old girl named Poppy, who, when she was only five years old, decided she would grow her hair out to donate it to the Little Princess Trust. Oh, brilliant. I know. She wanted to have it made into a wig for the children who have lost their hair due to illness. Poppy got the idea from one of her friends who had just had the big chop herself and revealed that she had given her locks to charity. But when Poppy's parents asked if she could do the same, they were told that the charity couldn't make wigs out of Afro hair because its texture is too delicate for the weaving techniques that are usually used in traditional wig making. However, Poppy didn't give up. She continued to grow her hair out, hoping that the charity would find another way to make wigs and change its policy. And in April 2021, it did. Amazing. 
Yeah, excited to finally get the top after six years of only getting small trims to keep her hair healthy, Poppy didn't take the decision lightly. She was aware of all the work and money that goes into making wigs. By the way, it takes around 30 to 60 hours of labor for one wig and around 550 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's expensive. Um, and she also wanted to commemorate this moment because it was a big thing for her. So she set up a fundraising page for the charity as well. So far, she has raised 2,225 pounds, which is enough for four wigs. Um, and she had planned to cut her hair on the 29th of January, but had to postpone because she tested positive for COVID. Oh, no. But she said it was okay because her hair would have more time to grow. No, that's brilliant. That's um, like so patient and so determined to do this great thing, which, I, yeah, I think is, is, is really, really lovely. What have you got? Okay, so uh, I need to apologise up front with this one. We've had a glut of charity shop stories recently, but this one did catch my eye. This was in the mirror this week. Um, so uh, a woman who was shopping in an RSPCA charity shop in East Finchley apparently went to try on a garment rushed out of the changing room to get back to her two children and in her hurry the woman says she left her i don't actually know how to pronounce this designer's name because designer handbags are not uh are not my forte uh balenciaga we're gonna go with balenciaga handbag behind uh, i deeply apologize to the makers of designer handbags for that um uh, so this bag which she purchased from harrods in july for 564 pounds uh, contained a number of belongings she said including her keys however when she returned to the shop to collect her things she said volunteers at the store had sold her bag to a customer for a fraction of the price that she paid so a spokesman for the RSPCA did not confirm how much the bag was sold for, but said staff at the store had made a very genuine error in good faith. Um, so I think an appeal has been launched to see if we can find the bag and reunite her with her bag and and her possessions as well. Um, but yeah, I'm honestly, I'm just impressed that somebody's bag was tidy enough to be mistaken for stock. Like if I left my handbag in a charity shop, somebody would look at it and find, you know, the the sort of the detritus that lives in the bottom of my handbag and go, actually, that is somebody's, that is very much in use and I don't want to look in there, much less buy it. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm really impressed. Um, this actually kind of happened to my mum once. Uh, she bought a, a present in a gift shop for my friend's little boy. And then she went to the charity shop next door. Uh, shout out to the RSPCA charity shop in Winscombe, North Somerset. It's a weird, dark little cave of a shop, but it does have some weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and uh, she later realised she'd left this handbag with the gift in there. And they hadn't sold it. But of course, it was a bit awkward to walk into the charity shop and be like, I'm not stealing uh, this is actually mine. Uh, so I think she did end up making a donation just because it was all a bit awkward. Um, uh, so yes, so accidental theft from charity shops, accidental donations to charity shops. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to Alina Martin, to our guest Penny Wilson and our producer Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>